0: First Timothy, we've been in First Timothy now for a number of weeks, Uh, we haven't made a whole lot of progress, but that's okay with me if it's okay with you. Uh, We're going to take it little by little, word for word, at least some of the time, Uh, and just remind you of a few things that uh, in in verse 6 and verse 7 last week, we talked about how there were, there were false teachers in, in Ephesus, and this is Paul's great concern, the reason that he's written this letter to his disciple or protege, Timothy, uh, who, whom he left behind in Ephesus as he moved on from there himself. And notice here that he still has concern for Timothy. He just doesn't leave him in Ephesus and go about his own way and do his thing and forget about his disciple, but he keeps in contact with him and continues to encourage him. To do one particular thing in in particular, and that is to instruct certain men not to teach strange or false doctrines. Uh, that, in essence, is is the is the the principal purpose for which Paul wrote this particular letter. And so we have to understand something, that in Ephesus, there were men that were there and they were teaching false things. They were teaching things, claiming them to be of the word of God, when in reality they were not, they were based on fruitless discussions and rabbit trails and this, that, and the other, and they'd come to all kinds of false conclusions, and then they were going out and they were teaching those things as if they were the truth of the word of God, wishing to be teachers of the law, even though they do not perceive either what they are saying nor the matters about which they confidently speak. So picking up with verse 8, that we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for immortal, immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which uh, I have been so verse 8, we know that the law is good. Now let me ask you something. Do you know that the law of God is good? Notice here it doesn't only say that. It also says this, if anyone legitimately keeps it. So there are ways of doing what one Believes to be the law which are good, but at the same time, there must be those which are not. As believers, we understand this. There's a sense in which we're supposed to keep the law, right? Those Ten Commandments and all the other things the Bible tells us that we're supposed to do those things. There's another sense in which they've already been kept for us by Jesus. And we need to understand that keeping is different. Jesus has kept the letter of the law so that we would not be judged according to that law. But at the same time, we're encouraged over and over again in Scripture to be respectful of the law and to abide by the law. Not because of anything we gain from it, but because of the love of God that has been put into our hearts. We talked last week or a couple of weeks ago about loving the word of God. And basically what is said here in in 1 Timothy is not the word of God. It's loving the law. Loving the law of God. Now I'm going to give you a little lesson in theology before we go any further. Okay. One of the issues that has taken place in the church since the days of the apostles and even down into our day is what place does the law, as believers, play in our lives? There are two extremes to that controversy, both of which are heretical, both of which are condemned by Scripture. You probably have heard of some of those, or one of those, legalism, you've heard of that. Have you ever heard anything called antinomianism? <laughs> it basically means against the law. In other words, the idea of the law is no longer applicable to believers at all in the New Testament. It very often is coupled with grace, and the idea there is we're saved by grace, and because we're saved by grace, now the law no longer has any application to you and me at all. That was one of the heresies that Paul was fighting against, not necessarily in this particular circumstance, but very often he was. And Romans is a good example of that. One of the heresies or one of the false teachings that Paul was speaking about in Romans is antinomianism. These are some of the things he says in Romans. Romans. Because that is true, because the law has been fulfilled in Christ, and we're saved by grace. Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? In other words, I love grace, and so if I want more grace, what I need to do is sin more, so I get more grace. He says this as well, shall we sin because we are not under law but grace? Did that which is good, that is the law, become a cause of death for me? And you know how Paul responds to all three of those questions? May it never be. In other words, may it never be that believers had the idea that because I'm saved by grace that nothing else matters anymore. Those Ten Commandments are out the window. All the other things that God commands me to do in the Bible, they really don't have anything to do with me. That was for the Old Testament, so on and so on and so on. What I need to do today is just learn how to love. That's just everything. And what Paul says, may it never be. May it never be. In other words, what he's saying is if you believe this, then you're dead wrong. We have legalism on the other end and we've talked a little bit about legalism already and as we continue in this letter, we're going to find out that that's in particular the kind of heretical kind of thing that Paul is speaking about as far as these false teachings. Legalism fundamentally means this, it's a belief that one makes one him, oneself right before God by keeping his law themselves. In other words, they earn salvation by being good. The law is good, so how do you make yourself good? You keep the law. There's something about Christianity, my friends, that sets it apart from every other religion. Actually, there's a lot of things that do, but this is one in particular that really should stand out for us. And that is this, is every single other religion, all of them, no, no, no one excluded from this, is all about legalism. Every single one of them. There is no grace. There is no concept like that. It's all about these are the rules and you keep these rules. And how do you make yourself right with God? You keep those those rules. It's all about self-salvation, working your own way. Christianity says people try to do that. that what, that's what makes sense to a lot of people. But the fact is, is this, is none of you keep the law. Even though the law is good, none of you have done it perfectly. And therefore, you don't have the ability to save yourself By keeping rules and regulations and etc., if you know your heart, you understand the truth of that. That we need grace. And if there's no grace, there's no salvation. I was listening to a conversation the other day between two professing Christians. One of them expoused something that sounded very much like legalism. The other one expoused something that sounded very much like antinomianism. I was very troubled. Because both of those demonstrate a lack of real heart understanding on the part of those people. For one, it was all about law. For the other one, law had nothing to do with anything. The New Testament is all about love, and you just love, 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 love. And the law has no meaning or application to New Testament believers at all. Let me tell you, both of those are heretical positions. They are not Christian. We struggle with it. The church has struggled with these things for, for ever since its inception. You need to understand that. These two extremes are things the church has had to battle and fight against all the way along. to prevent people from falling back into that thing. And I said this just a couple of weeks ago. The thing that ought to make you and I angrier than anything else is when we see te- people take Christianity and just turn it back into another form of, of work salvation all over again. But let me tell you something else that should equally anger us, and that is when people come along and they throw the, the law out the window completely. During the Reformation, it's interesting the Reformers, they, they agreed with each other on, on, on fundamentally how people come to salvation and, you know, things like that. There was a lot of discrepancies between them in regard to uh, things like the Lord's Supper and baptism and uh, et and et cetera. And et cetera. But one of the things you may not know is this, is there actually were two different views that were espoused in regard to things like keeping the Sabbath day. The first one I'm going to call the continental view. The continental view was basically the view of Calvin, Luther, all those people in continental Europe, those reformers that were in continental Europe. They believed basically the same thing about the Sabbath. And they had more of a slack view of the Sabbath. As a matter of fact, John Calvin is said to have been seen on a regular basis on Sunday afternoons playing ball with his children in his backyard. That they saw some sense in which the Sabbath was a day of worship and at the same time it was a day not to do anything and everything that you want to do, but at the same time it was a day, it was a gift that God had given to people. You see, one of the things we need to fight against is this: is remembering the days of Jesus. The Pharisees had taken that precious gift of the Sabbath day and they had turned it into a curse for the people. They hated the Sabbath day because they didn't only have so many rules to keep like they do all the other days of the week. They had a bunch more. It was oppressive. It took away any kind of sense of joy and, uh, and, and, and exhilaration and things like that. They hated it, just like you would. And let me just tell you, this continental view is the view that the vast majority of pastors in the PCA holds. In other words, not the strict, legalistic viewpoint that would be the Puritan view. Now, if you look at the Westminster Confession, what you're going to find is what, what, what the Puritan view, which is a very strict understanding of the Sabbath is reflected in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And this is what it says, The Sabbath is to be sanctified by holy resting all that day, even from such worldly employments and recreations as are lawful on other days, and spending the whole time, the whole time, in the public and private exercises of God's worship, except so as to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Sounds almost legalistic, doesn't it? Most of you know that I'm on the examining committee. And when people, when guys coming into the presbytery, they have exceptions in regard to things. They have to, uh, in regard to the Westminster Confession, they have to list them. And let me tell you, it's been a long time since I have heard a PCA pastor not take exception to that particular statement in the Westminster Confession. You see what I'm saying here, guys, is this. is when it comes to these things, the extremes are the places that we need to avoid. They're the dangerous places. They're the places that carry you off into places that you never thought that you would go. So what I'm telling you, there needs to be a healthy balance between a rightful understanding of the application of the law as a New Testament believer and at the same time have an understanding that it's all by God's grace. You follow what I'm saying? In the Bible, what you're going to find very often is that extreme places are the places you don't want to be. That the middle ground very often is the safer ground. Now, don't think for a minute that what I'm saying here is that the Sabbath is yours to do anything and everything that you want to all the time and things like that. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is there's room for things like leisure and rest. It, I mean, if you're a strict believer, and what, what we find there in that question in the Shorter Catechism, that means from the moment you wake up on Sunday morning till the time you, you do nothing at all but focus your attention absolutely exclusively on God. Now, who in this room even does that? Who in this room is even capable of doing that? But just remember this, that the Sabbath was given for a lot of reasons, and but one of the reasons was it was to be a day of resting. Day of resting. And that not just in a spiritual sense, but in a physical sense as well. It says here, the law is good if anyone legitimately keeps it. Just remember, when Jesus came and Jesus was preaching to the Jewish people, he was teaching to a bunch of bona fide legalists. Some of you are not going to like, like hearing me say this, but, but, but if you were living in those days and you were one of those people, you would have looked upon Jesus and thought he was a flaming liberal. When it came to things like the law, that's what you would have believed. Because what he was saying was so different than what had been ram cram jammed down their throats and into their lives to every nook and cranny of their lives as far back as they could remember. Rules, rules, regulations, laws multiplied on the Sabbath day. After all, Jesus saw nothing at all wrong with his disciples picking and eating the heads of grain as they leisurely walked through a grain field on the Sabbath day. He didn't discipline them for it. He didn't scold them for it. He didn't tell them they shouldn't be doing that. But I want you to remember something as well. Jesus also taught this because he was speaking to people who would begin to believe that because grace is the way of salvation, that that would mean there were no expectations on God's part for them in regard to keeping his commandments. He said this, Do not think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You need to understand some things, and one of those is this. As a believer, Jesus kept the law perfectly on your behalf. Every jot, every tittle, every eye dotted, every tall crossed. And if it were not for that, you would not have salvation. That is the basis for your salvation is the righteousness, the perfect, absolute righteousness of Jesus. So there is a sense in which you're no longer bound by it in that regard. But it would be insane for believers to begin to think things like, well, Jesus has fulfilled the law and all of that, and so therefore things like thou shalt not steal just disappear. or you're no longer to honor your father and mother, does that even make sense that that would be true? And yet there are some believers who kind of behave in that manner. I do have a a rule of thumb. And the rule of thumb is this, is that when you err, you err on the side of grace, not on the side of law. That when you're wrong, you're better off to be wrong when it comes to the law than it is to be wrong when it comes to grace. Because by nature we are legalists. It's what makes sense to us. That we do it, that we earn it, that we make our own way. Apart from Christianity, grace is pretty much an unknown concept to the whole of mankind, and it has been for the whole history of mankind. Verse nine, knowing this that the law is not for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and disobedient, godless and sinful, who kill their father and kill them. Do you understand there's a Greek word that means kill your father? Greek word that means kill your mother. Must have been common enough. They actually had a vocabulary word for it. Murderers. We understand this. Because of man's sin and his sinful nature, law is absolutely essential. If there was no law, then then mankind never would have made it out of the Garden of Eden. Right? The The law is absolute necessity for mankind. And it has many purposes. One of those is certainly to restrain sin. In other words, to keep sin from being more prevalent than it is. Also, to, to behold the righteousness of God. God. God's rules are steadfast. It's either right or it's wrong, period. There's no in-between in, you know, in ground. The law also enlightens us to what sin is. Paul says that if it wasn't for the law, I wouldn't know what sin looked like. How do I know when I, when I sin is when I compare what I've done with what the law says? It teaches me, it shows me what is sin in the eyes of God. It's also the standard rule by which the Lord condemns sin. But let me tell you, there's a, there's a, there's a purpose of the law, there's a function of the law, there's a benefit of the law that supersedes every one of those things that goes way beyond all of them, that is more important than any of the rest of them, do you know what that law is? Or what that purpose is? It is when you look at your own heart, when you look at your own life, and you compare it to the law, that it does nothing but drives you to the cross of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. That's what it does for believers. In other words... It's like a mirror. And when you look in that mirror, what you see over and over again is how lacking you are, how unable you are, how ugly your heart is, how much you are in absolute desperate need for a Savior without whom you would not stand a chance of getting anywhere. Law is not made for the righteous man, but it is made for the one who is self-righteous. Calvin says this, he says, It frequently happens that they who wish to be regarded as the greatest zealots for the law give evidence by their whole life that they are the greatest despisers of it. Their whole life cries out against them. Let me just tell you something. Those who focus on and continually bring attention to the sins of other people have no focus on the most important aspect of sin, and that is the sin that is in their own heart. The Apostle Paul, in just a few more verses, is going to say this. And you've heard me say this million times, and I'll say it more and more and more. But th- this is something he writes, not when he was a new convert, not when he was early in his ministry, not midwife through his life, but near the end of his life. He says this is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am, I am, I am foremost of all. I'm no... Stinkiest skunk. I'm the worst scoundrel. I'm the best, baddest person in the whole world. That's how Paul sees himself. His focus is not so much on the sins of other people. His focus fundamentally is more upon his own self, his, self, his own heart, his own sin. That's what he cares the most about. That's what he's most involved in putting to death. His sin. everyone in this room should be able to echo those very same words. I'm serious. Every one of us, if we really know our heart, we should be able to say, that a boy, Paul, but it's not you, it's me. But we don't do that very often. What we do is a we'll little look around and see what so and so is doing, and so and so it always makes us feel better when people are doing sin, you know, and we can bring attention to it. Have you ever thought things like, Look what so and so did? I could never do that. Let me tell you, you better be cautious about making statements like that, because sometimes God might just let you see exactly what you're capable of doing. If you're any better than anyone else is, for one reason, that's because God has got you reined in a bit, and He may just let go of the reins and let you really see what you're fully capable of doing. I mean, seriously, can we echo those words that I am the chief among sinners? Not him, not her, not that person over there, but me. See, we typically use the law as kind of a scope to look and see the faults and failings of other people more clearly so we can feel better about ourselves. As we said before, it is like a mirror that when we look at it and we compare it, to who we are and where we are. We are broken by our sin. Let me tell you something. Maturing as a believer has nothing at all to do with becoming more attuned to the sins of other people. has everything to do with becoming more attuned to your own. They were kind of enlightened at this point as to exactly what kind of false things these, these teachers in Ephesus were teaching. They had to do with application to the law. They were, they, they, they were doing in Ephesus basically the same thing that the Judaizers had done in Galatians. That is they were taking the gospel of grace and turning it into the gospel of works all over again. Their fruitless discussions that we've talked about apparently had to do with matters of the law which they did not understand even though they think they did. Paul goes on to say, knowing this, that law is not for a righteous man. Let me ask you something. Who is the righteous man? Well, there is one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, there is one, and his name is Jesus. He's the righteous man. He's the perfectly righteous man. Not me, not you, not any of the ladies, not any of the guys. It is Jesus. He is the only one who is truly righteous of themselves. He goes on to start listing all of these terrible, awful, nasty sins. Being lawless, being disobedient, being godless, being sinful, who kill their father and their mother and murders and etc., 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 etc. So, apart from Jesus, who among us is a lawless criminal. All of us. Every one of us. Apart from Jesus, who among us is disorderly, disobedient, even rebellious. Who? Who among us? We all are. I am. who among us is godless, impious, a sinner, apart from Jesus. I can't hear you. We all are. More particularly, I am. I am. I am. I am. I can't hear you. I am. Does that hurt? I mean, isn't it amazing that ancient Greek actually has words for killing your mother and killing your father? Compound words. That's what they literally mean. To kill your mother and kill your father. Ah, we got some ground here now that I don't think probably there's anybody in this room that's ever had much to do with killing their mother and their father in a literal sense. Right? So maybe we're innocent in that. What do you think? Maybe so. Maybe we're innocent in that one. Well... Just remember, Jesus, when he preached the Sermon on the Mount, he was preaching to a bunch of legalists. And what he did was he blew their legalism out of the water. And let me tell you, if we have that mentality, I haven't literally killed my mother or father, so I'm I'm squeaky clean of that. Jesus says, no, you're not. Because what he says is this, is he knew these legalists were coming. And they would think, you know, thou shalt not kill. And there were people there who literally had not killed anyone their whole life. And they were proud about it. They were all puffed up because they were saving themselves. They were good people. And what Jesus said in regard to that. You've heard that the ancients were told... You shall not murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery. In other words, there's ways of killing people. And then there are other ways of killing people. Killing people physically. But what he's talking about here is killing people emotionally, killing people spiritually, speaking harsh words to people out of anger, saying all kinds of things that are meant to do nothing but hurt someone. Now, who in this room is innocent of that? I don't hear any I am's. See, we have to understand something. The law goes a lot deeper than just the surface. And this is the point that Jesus was making. And he was striking down this legalistic perspective that people had on things. Why is it so hard to say, I'm just guilty? As guilty can be guilty. Me. Me. Because if you're not guilty, you don't need a Savior. If you're not guilty, you don't need Jesus. But if you are, He's absolutely your only